Good morning to our viewers online as well. Uh, for those of you who are new to Life Church, uh, I'm Roger. I'm the senior pastor here. Welcome. Uh, so over the years, uh, I have conducted many funerals, some in churches, some in uh, funeral homes, some quite small. Uh, one in particular was quite large, uh, standing room only. I think there were close to 400 people there. Sometimes there would be a graveside service. A couple times uh, there were military honors. Um, having come from a military family myself, both my grandfather and my father uh, retired from the U.S. Navy. Uh, I've always been moved by such funerals. Um, the bugle, the guns being fired, the folding of the flag, the presentation of the flag to the family. Funerals in general uh, can be very moving. Um, often we can experience God's presence at funerals. Cemeteries, too, can be a place where we can experience God's presence. Um, I've actually spent quite a bit of time over the years uh, in cemeteries. I'm just walking, praying, reflecting. Um, one time I was on a spiritual retreat and in my walking, I just happened upon a cemetery. And so I sat down and I read through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. That was an experience. Um, I think spending time in a cemetery is good for the soul. Uh, there's something healthy about watching the body of another being laid to rest. There's something enlightening, too, about reading gravestones. Loving mother, beloved father, devoted son. We realize that someday people will have a funeral or a celebration of life for me, for you. It's healthy for the soul to think about such things because it puts life in perspective. Our time here is short. Think about it. What would you want written on your gravestone? Like, what short phrase would encapsulate you? Typically, when we talk to friends and family at a funeral, we'll, we'll hear things like, um, he was a hard worker, or she was a great mom, or he was a great fisherman, or she loved cats. <laughs> what is the one thing you would want said about you at your funeral? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All of us face constant temptations that distract us. They pull us away from what should be our greatest treasure, relationship with Jesus. Right? He is our supreme treasure. And we would hope that when we've departed this earth, 
that that would be what people remember about us most, that Jesus was our supreme treasure. We're continuing our series on the Psalms, and today discussing Psalm 16. Um, Psalm 16 is a prayer of worship by King David. David, of course, was a shepherd boy who killed a giant. He eventually became king. Uh, he was a man who went into hiding many times for fear of his life. Um, and in spite of the fact that David had committed adultery, murder, and then tried to hide what he had done, David ended up being the king from whose descendants would come the Messiah. God himself said in Acts 13, 22, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Why is that? It's because in the midst of all his victories, right, which could have led to pride and self-sufficiency, in the midst of his defeats, which could have led to him losing faith, and in the midst of his struggles with his own sin, David still desperately longed to have an intimate relationship with God. God himself was always David's supreme treasure. And in Psalm 16, David is worshiping God in prayer, and he tells us why we should supremely treasure God. So, let's get into it. Verse 1 says, Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. David says, Keep me safe. Guard me. Watch over me. Preserve me, essentially. So God is the creator of all things seen and unseen, but he is also the preserver of all things seen and unseen. He creates, and then he preserves. He gives life, and then he sustains life. We tend to like to think of ourselves as self-sufficient. Um, that's the culture we live in, right? It is one of self-sufficiency. We celebrate that. But we aren't self-sufficient, um, not in the least. We didn't create ourselves. Uh, we didn't bring ourselves into existence. We, didn't, we don't see the invisible hand of God working behind the scenes of our life. He is working all the time. Um, we are dependent upon so many things outside of our control just to exist. So my son and I uh, often go to Fargo to Skate City to go roller skating. True roller skating with quads, not inlines, if you know what I mean. Quads are the wheels, like old school from the 70s. Inlines are like inline skates. Uh, so they recently did some remodeling at Skate City. Um, so, so Aiden likes to like skate backwards and spin around and uh, sort of dance skate. Um, he'll jump up and spin a few times and come back down uh, like an ice skater. Uh, I don't do all of that. <laughs> he, he surpassed me a long time ago with his skills. 
but I do like to skate fast, right? Uh, I, I go past everybody. I, I like the, the wind blowing, you know, especially when, you know, good disco song comes on or something. I'm just, I'm flying, okay? So a couple weeks ago, I was coming off, uh, I, was, I was coming full speed off the rink onto the carpet. Now, normally this isn't an issue, but they had just replaced the carpet, and so it had a much higher resistance than I was used to. Right? So, which means my upper body was moving way faster than my skates. And so I tumbled and I rolled several times and ended up with like this big rug burn like right, right here on my left knee. So why am I telling you this? Because to this day I'm fascinated with how the body heals itself. Um, the scab forms all on its own to protect the wound while it's healing. Like, I didn't tell it to do that, just did that. I just watched it, it's cool. And then, you know, as it heals, the scab starts to shrink, you know, and eventually falls off after it's healed. Like, why does the body just heal itself like that? I mean, you can explain it biologically, really, but here's the real answer. Even though we live in a fallen world, there is still evidence of God's sustaining grace all over the place, even in how a wound just heals itself. Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. God sustains us, God protects us, God preserves us. He even protects us from danger. So to say that I was reckless as a young man would be an understatement. Um, and usually my recklessness involved my motorcycle. Um, I hit a dog once. Uh, I laid my bike down. The dog was fine, he just walked away but I had all kinds of road rash. Um, I hit a deer once, almost laid it down. Um, I hit a bat once. Actually, the bat hit me. I was riding my bike and it just, you know, just slapped on my chest. I'm like grabbed it and like threw it, almost like fell over, you know, kind of felt like Batman, you know, with the thing on my chest. <laughs> That's a true story. Like, <laughs> Uh, I T-boned a car once, uh, flew right over the top. Um, I tried to drive my motorcycle for a while uh, when the brakes stopped working. So like I downshift to try to get as close as I could to stopping. And then, uh, and then as, as I needed to stop, I'd stick my foot like right on the wheel and try to stop it. Um, and several times I didn't stop in time and just rolled right out into the intersection. Uh, when I moved to the Midwest from Florida uh, for grad school, this was back in 95, uh, I kept trying to drive my bike in the winter because that's all I had was a bike. I laid it down several times on the ice. You don't ride a motorcycle on the ice, at least until you get it worked out. I don't know. I don't know how you ride a motorcycle on ice, but I never figured it out. Uh, now, I remember one time back in Florida, uh, driving my bike on the interstate, maybe going about 120 or so. 
And the bike had a fairing, that's that plastic piece that goes in the front, and it had a windshield. That windshield broke off while I was going about 120, and it almost decapitated me. It just, I mean, I just happened to duck in times. So many times I should have died, and yet I didn't. Over the years, I, I've had this thought, like, wow, God, God must have something big in store for me because I should be dead by now. So David, King David, back to our psalm, he knew his fair share of danger. He was a veteran of all kinds of struggles and battles and wars. He was often on the run for fear of his life. So when he wrote, keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge, he wasn't kidding. The bottom line, though, is that our eternal God, who spoke the universe into existence by his power, is our gracious protector. It's not like he created us and we can just exist on our own. Colossians 1.17 tells us that in Christ, God holds all creation together. If God didn't protect us, if he didn't preserve us, like we would just disintegrate. We need the Lord's protection constantly. But even more than that, Theologically, we know that we need protection from God's horrible, frightening wrath that's coming on the whole world because of sin. The Bible says it's coming, and we know it's coming. Like We see all around us evil ramping up. So when David says, keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge, the ultimate fulfillment of that prayer is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our safest refuge. Um, faith in Jesus is what will preserve us, what will protect us for eternity. So verse 2, Psalm 16 says, I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. So there's an interesting play on words here. Uh, in the ESV translation, English Standard Version, uh, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now the capital letters of the first Lord indicate that the Hebrew word here is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And the smaller case letters in the second Lord point to the fact that this is a different Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai is a word that implies power and authority, right? Hence the translation Lord or Master. So in using that word, David is essentially saying this. God owns me. I belong to him. Not only is he my God, not only is he sovereign Lord of everything, but he is also my Lord. He is also my master. So here's the point of that play on words. It's only when we've made God our absolute master that we will experience the security of dwelling in him. 
So the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, it's a confessional, it's a teaching tool used um, in the Lutheran church to teach young people about the nature of God, right? So it asks this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the correct answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So back to the verse. It's a profound statement that David makes in the second half of this verse. He says, I have no good apart from you. So are we that aware of our need for God's presence in our lives that everything else pales in comparison? David knew that his personal well-being, the well-being of his soul, depended on him regularly experiencing the transforming, life-giving presence of God. So I'm talking about God's presence. I'm not talking about being busy doing church activities. I'm not talking about even being disciplined in reading our Bibles and praying. Even those things can be done just simply out of rote. What matters is that we are regularly experiencing God's presence such that he is able to mold us and shape us in such a way that Jesus is becoming our supreme treasure. So there was a Christian woman um, who was getting up in age and her memory was starting to decline a little bit. And eventually the only verse that she remembered was 2 Timothy 1.12 and it's in the King James. It says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. So as time went on, she lost more of that verse and she only remembered that which I have committed unto him. That which I have committed unto him. Towards the end of her life, um, as she lay on her deathbed, her family noticed her lips were moving and all they could hear was the one word that she remembered from her favorite verse. And she kept saying it over and over again. Him. 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 When we come to the end of our lives, that's all that will matter. Is him. Verses 3 and 4, Psalm 16 says, The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. The pains of those who have acquired another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. So it's, it's very interesting that David goes from telling God, every good thing comes from you, to speaking about people, godly people. He says, they're my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. He almost seems to contradict himself. First he says that every good thing comes from God, 
And then he's talking about these godly people who he takes pleasure in. And if you remember, uh, Jesus, when he was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical relationship with God is of primary importance, but our horizontal relationship with people is just behind it in importance. So the NASB translation of this verse says this, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. So the Hebrew word here for majestic implies splendid or high ranking, kind of like a king. And then he says, all my delight is in them. So take a moment and look around the room. Look at the fellow saints who are among you on the earth, the majestic ones. Would you say that all your delight is in them? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, said the following. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. We have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. So you hear what Lewis is saying? Every person we meet will one day either be so glorious that if we were to see them now, we would think they were a god, or they will be more hideous than our worst nightmare. That's because every single person that we encounter will either be going to heaven or be going to hell. 
They'll either be glorious and shine like the sun, or they'll be in darkness and tormented forever. There's no in-between. There is no exception. Every single person on the planet, whoever lived, who is living now, whoever will live, is either one or the other. That makes every single person that we meet important. Those of you who work with children, every single child you interact with has this future ahead of them of glory or horror. That unkempt person who's ahead of you in line at Walmart They'll either be redeemed and glorious or they will be hideous and decayed. Or even that nondescript person uh, that gets overlooked. I'm the kind of person that Jane Austen in her novel Emma described as this. She says, just the kind of person I would have nothing, just the kind of person I would have nothing to do with because they're not high enough to be in my friendship, nor low enough to need my help. One day, even that person will command your full attention. They'll either be so hideous that you can't stand to look at them, or they'll be so glorious that you'll be tempted to worship them. It's important that we view God's, or we view people from God's eternal perspective, right? Verses five and six. They say, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. So these verses point back to when Israel had come out of 40 years of being in the wilderness, right? Wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're now coming into the promised land. When Joshua divided the land up, uh, these people who had been slaves for hundreds of years now were experiencing the joy of owning their own property for the first time. Um, These verses also point to the beautiful inheritance we receive when, by God's grace, we are freed from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of death, and we are given a beautiful inheritance. Right? Eternal life through Christ's saving work on the cross at Calvary. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So this is the beautiful inheritance we'll share with the other people of God. So David was at war, said this, uh, most of his life. Um, For many years, he was a fugitive without a home. Uh, He slept on the ground. He slept in caves. And yet David wrote this because he knew that in treasuring God, he possessed everything that God promised and he possessed everything that he needed. This is why David could write this in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you 
more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. In God, we have everything our hearts could ever want or need. So King George VI uh, was king of England from 1936 to 1952. Before he became king, he was already a follower of Jesus. Um, he attended a brethren church in London. Of course, he had to stop going to that church when he became king because when you become king of England, you become the head of the church of England, right? So at one point, King George went to Canada and the Canadian officials thought King George might like to meet a native-born chief. They have Native Americans too in Canada, right? Um, so on the day they met, they asked the chief if he would like to sing something for the king. Everyone thought that he would sing some kind of Native American song. The chief was also a Christian. Everyone was surprised uh, when the chief began to sing these words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. So after the chief finished singing, the king went over and he took the chief by his hands and he said, I'd rather have Jesus too. In Jesus, we have everything our hearts whatever want or need. Verses seven and eight, Psalm 16 say, I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. So here's the principle. When God is first in our lives, we will be secure and we will be stable. Most of us are familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. They're both good friends of Jesus. Um, but one was busy serving Jesus, right? While the other, Mary, sat at his feet and worshiped him. And even though Jesus loved Martha, uh, he made it clear to her what he preferred. He said in Luke 10, 42, there is only one thing worth being concerned about, right? And what is that? It's being in the Lord's presence. Right? Jesus himself realized the importance of being in the presence of the Father. He had to do the same thing that he asked us to do today, every day. To run to the Father and be in his presence. I've always found it fascinating, um, not the number of people that Jesus healed but the number of people he didn't. That sounds weird. But like he'd heal some people and the crowds were like all pressed in around him, right? And then he'd say to his disciples, let's go. And they'd essentially like leave people standing there wanting to be healed. 
Why? For one, he knew what his primary mission was, right? It wasn't just to heal people. But more interestingly, uh, both he and the disciples took breaks and ran to the Father. Even when the disciples were like peppering him with questions, like for days, Jesus would take a break and he would go to be with the Father. Hey, where's Jesus? I don't know. You know, oh, he's off somewhere, getting up early, spending time with the Father. Right? Prayer and solitude weren't just disciplines for Jesus. It's how he met with his Father. And keeping the Lord first, both in our hearts and in our lives, is the key. It is the key to being secure and being stable. So the last three verses are the following. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I know many of you are, fishermen, fisherwomen. Uh, I'm sure you know how distressed a fish is when it's out of water. Like, it gasps, it twitches, it convulses until you put it back in the water. Why? Because fish were made to live in the water. Well, like that, first and foremost, uh, you and I are human beings created by God in the image of God to live for the glory of God. We were created to treasure God and to live in the presence of God. Our struggle is that because of our sin going all the way back to Adam and Eve, we were cast out from the living presence of God, the source of everything that we need. And now we are like fish out of water. We gasp, we twitch, we convulse because we are outside of what we need most, the living, transforming, life-sustaining presence of God. We're no longer in the environment for which we were made. So while it's true in one sense that God is everywhere, um, the presence that David is speaking about is this tangible, deep, joyful, intimate presence of God that we were created for. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, for the first time, he was outside the presence of God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus' words weren't just reflecting the physical agony of the cross. They're reflecting the horrific agony of being outside of God's presence. Ever since the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve were cut off from the Garden of Eden and cut off from God's intimate presence, all of creation has been experiencing the groaning of 
of the weight of sin. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. He says, For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So what does the future hold for God's children? David says it holds three things. The way of life, which is eternal life in God, right, with Jesus Christ. The joy of God's presence, number two, right, not some short-lived happiness, but a deep, everlasting joy. And then three, the pleasures of living with him forever. This is our inheritance. This is the joy that is set before us. Psalm 107 verse 9 says, For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. If we are in Christ, we can be secure. We can be fully and totally secure. Not in our own ability, not in anything that is in this world, but in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Jesus himself is our inheritance. Jesus himself is our treasure. Jesus himself satisfies all of our deepest longings. And Jesus himself is all that we will ever need. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, you are all we need. You're our redeemer, you're our savior, you're our protector, you are the bread of life, you are living water, and you are our supreme treasure. Lord, I pray you would help us in every way possible to submit to your lordship, because we know that is where security is, under the shadow of your wing. Lord, I pray that we would begin to see each other through your eternal lens. We begin to see how we can make an eternal impact in people's lives. Helping them move from terrible darkness to glorious light. From horror and hopelessness to eternal victory. I pray, God, that each of us here would live a life of faith dedicated to first experiencing and then extending the love of God in such a way that when we die, that's what people think first. He loved the Lord or Jesus was her treasure or he was committed to sharing the love of God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.